This is um, what we call a canopic jar. It's one of four jars that they would have um, that was used as part of the mummification process. And this one contained the liver. But it doesn't have the liver in it anymore. No, it doesn't, thank goodness. <laughs> Hello, welcome to Curious Objects. I'm Ben Miller. And I'm Michael Diaz Griffith. Michael, I was obsessed with Egypt as a child. Were you? Completely. That's probably why we're here today. I'm sure it has something to do with it. And lucky for us, today's guest is Karis Tyndall of Charles Eade, who's a specialist in, among other things, ancient Egypt. I adore Karis. She is a winter show exhibitor, and she's young and so enthusiastic about the material that she handles. Absolutely infectious enthusiasm and a great scholar to boot. And she's going to be telling us about a truly fascinating object, a canopic jar. Now, um, all I know about canopic jars is that they held human organs. That's right. Yeah. And in fact, there were four key organs, each one associated hmm. with a particular canopic jar. And um, Karis is going to uh, tell us all about the cultural significance of those jars and the religious and spiritual significance. But there is something a little bit grisly about it, isn't there? There is. And I think, you know, it's fascinating to think about human viscera that sort of travels down through the ages in these objects all the way to the probably the 19th century when they would have been either recovered by archaeologists or perhaps robbed from the tombs in which they sat for so long. Absolutely. I mean, we know the, about early tomb robbers who are yeah. after precious jewels. But in the 19th century, you know, with Napoleonic conquests and a flourishing of interest in Europe in these artifacts of ancient civilization, you know, there are huge numbers of pieces that are uh, excavated and explored and documented and studied, um, including, of course, m famously mummies. Um, and it's, there's a really interesting historiography here, right? I mean, these artifacts, including the mummies, are taken on world tours. They're seen by thousands of people. They're obsessed over. And still today, you know, um, as children in grade school, is there any period of history that's more exciting, that's more enthralling than, than mm. ancient, ancient Egypt? What, what do you think it is, Michael, that gets us so excited about that? I think that there's the distance of time, but there's the, also the idea that that civilization was so advanced I mean, we're fascinated by prehistoric objects, right? Some of which are, well, all of which are earlier than these Egyptian artifacts, but we only know so much about them. The fact that we know so much about Egypt makes it particularly compelling. Yeah, you can really paint a rich picture of what life looked like and what their culture looked like, even though it's separated by millennia and by, by time and geography. And it's, it's simultaneously hard to imagine ourselves there but so interesting to think about what it was like. Yeah, and I don't you feel like the West has always had a kind of obsession with Egypt, or at least over the past couple hundred years? It's like there's a dichotomy that's been set up Absolutely. between the West and you know Rome and Egypt. Sure. And we kind of grew up in that imaginary still. Yeah, I mean, if you look at um, even you know early 19th century sculpture, and I, I know about this through the world of silver, um, the great motifs for silver sculpture in the 1820s, 1830s, 1840s are ancient Roman and Greek motifs mm -hmm. and ancient Egyptian motifs. Mm -hmm. um, those are sort of the, the pillars, if you will, um, the, of, of the subject matter. And I think there's a reason for it. I mean, 
these aesthetic ideas dating back to you know, the very concept of a, of a pyramid or um, of a, a pharaoh's headdress um, that translate through the centuries that have formed the foundations of a lot of our um, ideas around, of course, proportion, but also um, geometry mm. uh, and ornament and what decoration. humans are capable of doing, right? I mean, the pyramids being one of the wonders of the world and critically being proximate to Europe, right? So that Europeans could travel to Egypt and depending on your viewpoint, act as researchers or marauders, but it was there. Yeah. I mean, and we think about it, you know, Japan wasn't opened up until to the West until the second half of the 19th century. And Egypt had been open to the West for, you know, since the Napoleonic era yeah, right. and earlier. So it's, it's just been close and yet distant from our experience for a while now. We, we explored this a little um, a few months ago in our conversation with Philip Hewitt-Jabor um, about a, a, an alabaster vase. But he talks about the mining of, and, and quarrying of materials mm. out of Egypt that are then transferred across the Mediterranean and used in Byzantium and in Rome in um, sculptural works and architectural works. So yeah, there's been a, a cross-pollination for millennia a very long time and and i know that as a child i was taken to exhibitions of egyptian artifacts i remember watching documentaries about egypt when i was sick at home from school and it kind of ruled my imagination so i can't wait to hear what you and karis discuss today yeah well i'm excited to hear about the these uh, rather morbid objects let us know what happened to those livers and see you soon since 1805, Freemans has been part of the fabric of Philadelphia, helping generations of clients in the buying and selling of fine and decorative arts, jewelry, modern design, and more. Freemans is now welcoming consignments for our spring 2020 American Furniture, Folk, and Decorative Arts auction. Visit freemansauction.com to request a complimentary auction valuation and speak with one of our specialists. Freemans, Philadelphia's auction house, sharing the world of art, design, and jewelry with you wherever you are. Um, so, Kara Stindle, thank you so much for joining me for Curious Objects. Well, thank you for having me. And we're going to talk about um, uh, an object that is, I believe, the oldest object that has ever been featured on Curious Objects. Oh, I like that. Yeah, I didn't it's know a, that. a real okay. distinction. Yeah. And um, that's because you deal in antiquities. Um, and in this case, specifically, we're talking about ancient Egypt. Mm -hmm. um, so why don't you start out by uh, telling me what this piece is and, and, and what it looks like? Sure. Well, this is um, what we call a canopic jar. It's made of calcite, um, or alabaster, as people more often know it. It's a kind of creamy colored, um, banded stone. Um, and the Egyptians used it quite a lot. It was very um, luminous, especially when, when light hitting mm -hmm. it. Um, so the uh, a canopic jar was um, one of four jars that they would have um, that was used as part of the mummification process. Um, and so it's, sort of, it's probably easiest to, sort of, when describing what this was, is yeah. to start right at the beginning, sure. being the point of death. <laughs> the, the beginning, so, right, exactly. or the end. The, the beginning of the canopic jar's purpose, exactly. So um, the point at which... And, uh, and, an and it's, a, it's, it's uh, what, two and a half feet tall? It is 32 centimetres. Right. Foot and a half tall. Yeah. There we go. So they come in, in 
I mean, generally they're roughly about this size, um, but you're talking, you know, they use them for a few thousand years. Mm -hmm. So these have varied in their, um, the material that was used for them, um, from different stones to terracotta to faience, even that wonderful, brilliant blue material, yeah, a, a glaze. Right. Um, and the burial was very important for Egyptians because they believed in reincarnation. And as a lot of um, cultures and, and societies do, when your life is particularly fraught, you have to think, well, there's got to be more than this. <laughs> I have to look forward to something. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And the Egyptians felt this especially strongly. And um, they had a sort of the lord of the underworld was, um, he was the good guy. You know, he was the person who, if he thought that you behaved well in the afterlife, he was the one who brought you back to life. So he was the Osiris, ultimate person right? you wanted to please. And his name exactly right. was Osiris. Um, and so he, these canopic jars, um, each one uh, was sort of represented by one of the four sons of Horus. Now, Horus was the son of Osiris. Okay. It's all very complicated. And the Egyptian pantheon, you know, has all these different layers, but they move about a lot. You know, who's married to who, who had a okay. child with whom, you know, who's, not, who's there's, sister there's no and Bible wife. To, with the consistent genealogy. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's reasonably given um, structure, but of course, what people, exactly why people were worshipped, you're talking about 3,000 years of, of history and belief. And Egypt um, was united and split up several times over those 3,000 years. Um, so beliefs, there's, you see veins running through that are consistent, but they, of course, change a bit, you know, when you have, you know, Ethiopians ruling as pharaohs or Persians ruling as pharaohs, yeah. you know, they're all Egyptian in inverted commas. Right. Um, but of course, they've brought their That's own... apostrophes for, uh, or quotation marks for American <laughs> listeners. Yeah, exactly. I'm doing, I'm doing the two fingers up by my head when I say that. <laughs> um, so yes, yeah, so you can, you know, you see the way that people are represented change as well. But anyway, sorry, to go back. Um, so when somebody died, you had 70 days with which to prepare them for burial and put them under the ground. What and happened at the end of 70 days? You were in the ground. It had to okay. be done. And if it wasn't done by 70 days... Well, no one writes about that. Not. You probably pretended that it hadn't been that long. Got I don't know, okay. I'm afraid. But that's <laughs> the rule, they just 70 say, days. Exactly. I've, I've not heard of someone go, oh, whoops, sorry, and scratch out. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I think they'd just pretend. Um, but anyway, so the, the idea was you had um, 70 days in which to um, uh, embalm the body and um, complete all the rituals and to mourn and to bury them. Yeah. So... Um, Part of the process of mummification was the removal of the most important organs within the body and the preservation of them. The right. organs they didn't deem important, they disposed of. Um, Including the brain. Exactly. Which they hoiked out through the nose. They thought it was a load of mush and they just, um, in essence, disposed of it. That's so contrary to common... Um, popular perception of today. No, but what's rather romantic, though, is what they they understood the uh, the notion of a brain. But what they thought drove you and your decision making was your heart, which is rather beautiful, actually. So the heart yeah. they believe to be the most important organ because they believe that's where your soul lived and that's what made you make the decisions you do in life. And I think that's that that's very beautiful. And it they, is rather romantic. It, it is There's deeply romantic. Just a little philosophically interesting about locating the core of yourself somewhere other than where your eyes are. Yeah. 
That's true. I hadn't thought about that. Anyway, uh, yeah. not to get off subject. Here. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, so the brain is not important, but um, but the, no, the four critical organs are. Yes. Well, the, the heart wasn't one. The the heart was removed, preserved, and put back in the body because they needed to make sure that when the soul, um, they they knew when you died, the soul would leave your body. But they needed to make sure that in the afterlife, it knew to came to come back to your body. Right. So it needed to go back to that resting place, in essence. So um, anyway. Then the four organs that they deemed the most important were the lungs, liver, stomach, and intestines. And each one of those were then treated, preserved, and put in one of the four canopic jars. And one of the four sons of Horus looked after, each one had a specific organ that they looked after. Gosh. What a bad lot for Horace's sons. I know. Bit of a grim loss, I mean, can you it? imagine being born into the job <laughs> yeah. of looking after everyone's livers? Yeah, I know. I know. It's, um, and, it's, and, and what I rather like about it as well is that they all had um, a different physical appearance. So up until the, around the 19th dynasty, um, which is the New Kingdom, um, the... Can you give me a date range here? Oh, until about, gosh, what are we looking at? About sort of 1200 um, BC, 1300, okay. 1200 BC. So just um, 3300 3, years ago, give or take. Uh, yeah, exactly. Right. They, um, the four sons of Horus were human headed. And then they started being represented as, um, and I'll give you the different names. So there was Imseti, who stayed human headed, and he contained the liver. Okay. Um, Kebesenwef was falcon-headed, and he contained the intestines. Um, Happy. Happy. H-A-P-I. Got it. <laughs> yeah, no, important distinction. Quite sweet, though, anyway. S- sounds like a cheerful one. Yep. Um, Happy um, was the baboon-headed. He looked after the lungs. Duamutef okay. was the jackal-headed and looked after the, um, the stomach. Got it. Okay. And so, the, so there were four jars, each one dedicated to one of these organs, and each one looked after by one of the sons of Horus, exactly. the grandsons of Osiris. And they were kept separate from the body um, for, for what reason? Well, the body needed to be, in order for it to be preserved, and of course when you find mummies now, you know, the hair's there, the teeth there, I mean, it's, it's amazing how successfully they preserved these bodies. They had to remove all of the moisture from them. And, and they actually, in fact, then padded out the body, so they kept their form, having removed all the moisture um, and left them out in the sun as well to really dry them out. They then padded them out with um, straw or linen um, and, and then wrapped them. So you know that way you see them now in the kind of wrapped mummiform sort of Yeah, figure. I've seen those movies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sort of like loo roll dangling off arms, uh-huh. that kind right. of thing. Got it, yeah. got it. Um, yeah, so they, they exactly. So they, the, um, they would then be put in a sarcophagus and separate to the sarcophagus, but in the tomb would be these canopic jars. Um, and they're buried with all sorts of other things, um, you know, to help them in the afterlife. Um, and anyway, so yes, yeah, so these jars, um, and in fact, in later periods, when you get to the late period, sometimes you even see them late period starting from 664 BC up until 332 BC when um, King, well, Alexander the Great and, and Ptolemy came into Egypt. And then you start to see things changing a bit because, of course, they brought, and then the aristocracy with them, of course, brought their own beliefs. Um, and they did, certainly didn't believe in animal-headed deities. Right. Um, but some of them you'd even see, they became... Um, uh, 
symbolic. So yeah, they actually didn't contain anything in the latter part sometimes. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, but this one, however, is um, hollow, and um, and it did contain. So it, it was and, and which one is the imseti? Okay. Yep, and contained the liver. Right. Yes. So, but it doesn't have the liver in it anymore. No, it doesn't. Thank goodness. I think that would be far too gory. I'm not sure I'd, I'd feel as comfortable going near it. In fact, when a lot of these, I mean, this was discovered a long time ago, and I think when people did rediscover them, I think they tended to be cleaned out. Uh -huh. um, you know, these things, you know, Egyptomania started, you know, so back when, well, really in a major scale when Napoleon conquered Egypt. Right. And so from then, of course, their practices of excavation were very different to what we do now. Of course, nothing excavated now would leave Egypt. Um, and they would preserve and that, you know, they probably wouldn't even open them. You know, mm. it, you want to look after what you can there. But of course, back then they were, you know, these things were being sent off. Right. And, it was the wild west. Uh, East, as you will. Yeah. Well, and a lot, you know, and, and in a way it's good these things were dispersed because now all major museums can be filled with these things and, and private collections, but it's led the greater world to understand ancient Egypt. You know, we all know that it's part of world culture is the dissemination of knowledge, and that yeah. one of the best ways to do that is through material objects. Right. Um, so let's let's come back in a minute to the um, uh, the, the question of provenance and dis dispersion and distribution sure. and so on. Um, but I want to focus on this specific um, object for the moment. Mm -hmm. um, how do you know that it is? Uh, that this particular um, pot is dedicated to Imseti? Well, because we know the period that it was made, both stylistically, but also because of the hieroglyphic inscription on the front, um, it says it was for Henat, who was a priest of Tar, Tar being the sort of the the god of creators and craftsmen, architects, that kind of thing. It was very important for it. Um, and this name is known and, and attested to in other, um, you know, and the, and the role that he had. And so we know that he was from the 26th dynasty. Um, and so, and that's sort of 664 to 525 BC. Okay. Um, and so because of that, we know during this period that the canopic jars all had the heads depending on which son of Horus they were. Of course, prior to the 19th dynasty, you might not know because they were all human-headed. So because this is the human-headed one from the late period, 26th dynasty, we know it must be in Seti. And in fact, there's an old collection label on the underside of the lid where he's called as Kebesenwef, which was the falcon-headed one, which is in fact incorrect. Yeah. So when it was discovered, of course, people have been, our, our understanding of these objects has massively changed over time. Um, as, as, you know, for example, the discovery of the Rosetta Stone, you know, people couldn't even translate this stuff for such a long time. Uh, you know, and so it's, it, but people would still try and say, oh, this dates to this, or this belonged to this person. So obviously when this, you know, in the 19th century, when it was first given, um, whoever it was that said, and it's a 19th century hand that has written this on it, they just got it wrong. It happens. I have to we say, looking at it, it's, it's hard to imagine that this head is that of a falcon. <laughs> I know, but that's what I mean. The, the person didn't know, whoever wrote that, was not aware they that, didn't know that, that name... at this period it would have had a falcon head if it were the individual I the see, sum I that see, they I thought see. it was. Okay. And, and so it was so that person misinterpreted the hieroglyphic text perhaps or just made a guess and Who got knows? it wrong or some, something Who like knows? that. For whatever, right. you know, maybe he just stuck the wrong label to the wrong vase. I mean, usually there's right. a whole load of reasons sure, why they might sure, have put sure. it on okay. incorrectly. Yeah, fair enough. Um, but now we know this to be, to be in SETI. 
Um, yes, and it is certainly a recognizable human. <laughs> <laughs> it most definitely is. And a very fine one as well, we might add. <laughs> the form of the head actually resemble um, other depictions of Imseti and other media. Is, is it a well-defined face, or is it just yeah. a face that... It's a face wearing um, a, a wig, a plain bag wig, and it's tucked behind the ears. And um, and as you can see, it sort of it, it stops being a wig and turns into a lid, and so it tucks up right under the chin. The head—it's just a human head. Yeah. And Imsadi didn't have a specific head or a spe- specific no, facial features. No, no exactly nothing yeah. abnormal, no sort of third eye or anything yeah, that, yeah. that means you could pick him out. No, it was just in in whatever way that the, I guess whoever um, the craftsman was, you know, put a face on on this lid. There you go. This is going to be the god. Yeah. So what do you know, or or what can you deduce about? Um, uh, where it came from, who or what kind of person uh, might have had his or her liver uh, put in this. Um, in <laughs> well, this we know, and, and it would both men and women um, uh, underwent this process of mummification, and um, you know, the the richer you were, the more money you would put in to, and the more importance while your social standing that was often equated with wealth, and and so you would want your um, Sort of the, all of the things you're buried with to be as um, as lavish as possible, really, yeah. in the richest materials. It's the opposite um, of, the, of the idea that you can't take it with you, right? <laughs> yeah, no, you, absolutely. You really did take it with you. And we see people being buried with things that were clearly, because they have no signs of use whatsoever, they were obviously um, made for burial. For burial, they said, right. right. And I want this. And they also believed that um, you know the more times your name was seen and, and read by people, that the greater the chance was that, that you would live on. I mean, mm. and, and and again, I think quite philosophically, they believed that so long as your name is uttered or people know your name or your name said by people, that your memory is alive and therefore you are alive. Right. And, and actually, that's quite beautiful because you can get into the idea of well, what is life and death? And it's something that we all actually in a modern age battle with all the time. You know, the idea of someone being brain dead, but their body's still alive. Mm-hmm. At what point mm-hmm. is someone dead? And they had this idea that so long as you said their name, so people would would try and make sure that people still richly sacrificed them or would still celebrate them because so long as people knew them, they were alive in some element and some form. Yeah. And, and until they were reincarnated by um, Osiris, they needed that. Right, right. Um, so this man, um, and of course we know who he is because he wrote all about it on the canopic jar and indeed on the others and, and you know, shabtis have been found as well. And so um, we know these important um, roles that he had um, sort of within society, in essence, what his job was. You know, being a priest was a, a, was a really, it was a powerful position to have and you would have ended up, you know, acquiring quite a lot of, of wealth and, and quite a few assets with it um, at the time. Okay. And so certainly, and obviously, because you would have been deeply religious, um, you would put all of that, or as much as you could, into your into your burial. Right. So I've got. I don't know if you're interested. Do you want me to read out what the, it says? The inscription. <laughs> I'd I'd love to hear what it says. Yeah. So the um so the inscription on the front on the front um, in hieroglyphs, and it's been um, carved and then picked out um in in a black pigment. Um, says words spoken by Isis. Isis was the um, sister wife of Osiris. Okay. So words spoken by Isis. 
I seize the enemy, I give protection to Imseti, who is in me, the protection of the God's father, priest, scribe of the temple of Tar, Henat, born to Tarshirt Ihet, true of voice, is the protection of Imseti, the Osiris, God's father, priest, scribe of the temple of Tar, Henat, born to Tarshirt Ihet, true of voice, is Imseti. So you can see there again the Good repetition, Lord. this idea you want to constantly repeat your name yeah. and the important people's names because it really drills it on home. That's more of an epitaph than most people get today. And that, that's just <laughs> yeah. for his liver. Well, exactly. I think, I mean, but I mean, you see these, you know, whenever you see sarcophagi, they've just got line after line after line. Yeah. And a lot of it's actually very formulaic, you know, true of voice, words like that. You see that kind of thing repeated over and over. So people say to me, oh, can you read hieroglyphs? And I'm, you know, uh, of course, I've done courses on it on things, but, you know, this is a language that changed over 3,000 mm. years. It's like, you know, saying, oh, yes, you know, Chaucer is the same as if you go to Glasgow, you know, and, and someone would, or you read train spotting. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's, sort of, yeah, it's the same yeah. language, but it changes, you know, drastically with right. time. Um, but because there are little set phrases that they still use, you know, I can understand, say, what all the different individual hieroglyphs, what letter it might mean, but how exactly you translate it might change. But things like this, are quite formulaic and they do tend to stay with time. They don't change massively. So he was a priest and yes. um, therefore wealthy and interested in preserving his legacy and in carrying a certain number of his possessions with him into the afterlife. Um, where, where would he have been buried? Where did this vessel um, come so from? So this one, I believe, was at Saqqara. Um, you get these huge um, sort of areas where people would all just be be buried i mean they'd have to be just outside of major cities of course that's really always been the case it's um you know they they make it for religious reasons but the practicalities are you don't want decomposing bodies sure too near cities it's yeah. just it's bad you know <laughs> in, the, in sort of the wilderness and the wildness of, of a desert you don't yeah. want to be attracting yeah. all the bad animals yeah. um, and they also needed space um and and you know there was um and they will bury together. There'd be whole infrastructure around it as well. And you see, I mean, next to these huge sort of precincts and, and mortuary temples and that kind of thing, you can see entire villages set up where everybody who was there had some role in funerary rites or the embalming process really? and that's really interesting when people rediscover this and we've learned so much from when they discover even just like the the dumping ground outside of these you know the pits where we chuck now you think of la in essence landfill and so with little things that you see outside of these areas you know where people have written you know their scrap paper of the time would just be you know either bits of particularly flat rock that they might have got or shards mainly what we call ostraca um, shards of terracotta of, of pottery where they'd write things on and people would take notes and these things have all been dumped in these in these sites and actually it's taught us a lot about the areas where people have been buried and and you know sort of what the purpose was of the people who lived on the outskirts of that we'll be back in just a minute uh, just a quick reminder, as always, you can see photos of the Canopic Jar online at the magazineantiques.com slash podcast uh, or on my Instagram at Objective Interest or Michael's at Michael Diaz Griffith. Also, wherever you're listening right now, it would be fantastic if you subscribe, if you haven't already, and leave a rating and review. That really helps people to find us. Thanks. Freemans is excited to announce Wharton Eshrick, Made for the Stage, a historic collection of woodwork by one of America's most important woodworkers from the Hedrow Theater Collection in Rose Valley, Pennsylvania coming to auction on March 31st. 
The sale includes the legendary Thunder Table from 1929 and the earliest chairs made from repurposed axe and hammer handles by the artist. Established in 1923 in the Rose Valley Arts and Crafts community, Hedgerow Theatre is America's longest-serving repertory theatre. The works from the collection represent the indelible influence of the performing arts on Eshrick, widely regarded as one of the most significant studio woodworkers of the 20th century. Freeman's, Philadelphia's auction house, sharing the world of art, design, and jewelry with you, wherever you are. We're talking burial in the 13th century BC. Well, so um, this guy was buried um, 7th century. Um, oh, sorry. So he, he was 26th dynasty. Okay, which is late dynasty. dynastic okay, period, right, right, right. yeah, which was the sort of the last hurrah before um, everything changed and the Ptolemies came in and then the Romans conquered. Okay, so, so he's living sort of, on the cusp of major change in in Egypt. Yeah, he did absolutely. I mean, you get four times in Egyptian history where Upper and Lower Egypt were unified, and this was the final time. Um, and it, it was, you know, Old Kingdom. Then you have your first intermediate period where it all split up again, and then you have Middle Kingdom, second intermediate period, New Kingdom, third intermediate period, and then the late dynastic period. And so this was uh, the 26th dynasty. Some say 20, well, 25th is kind of at the beginning, but it was different rulers. It was say I, this is 26th dynasty where. Um, yeah, in essence, where the, the wealth and power, there is a centre of it again in Egypt, and, um, and it lasted for about 300 years until Alexander the Great and all his wondrousness came yes. in and, and, and conquered you know, most of what was their known world, certainly. Right. Um, and then, yeah, and he, he ruled it for a very short period of time before he died, and of course, Ptolemy took over. Sure, and the rest is history. But in the meantime, we have our priest's liver sitting in this pot yep. uh, in a tomb uh, in Saqqara, you said? Yes. A- and then centuries pass, and what happens? Um, what happens to this pot, and how does it end up in London and in New York well, City? Where for we this are exact now? vase, I wish we knew. <laughs> you know, one of the things is, of course, people have been, you know, you had tomb robbers at the time, I mean, when they knew that there had been a great burial and there was a lot of welfare, you know, people would go in and 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 nick everything they could back out of it. Of course, yeah. there were people trying to stop that from happening, and and you know, rolling big boulders down <laughs> narrow hallways. Yeah. And, exactly, you know, cursing everyone who stands and goes within yes. within a square yeah. mile. But no, exactly. It um, you know, it it, it clearly did happen an, in antiquity. Mainly the the tombs that were. You know, ransacked in antiquity and, and robbed were of, of pharaohs. You know, they seem to be the great ones. But you know, we, when these things are rediscovered now, we can't tell at what point always when they will have already been. Um, you know, whether they were looted, and we know now whether or not it's been a proper excavation. However, they've been people have been excavating. You know, as I say, in a major way since um, Napoleon, and um, and records are kept but when you know that um, you know the state would allow excavations both by private individuals by um, 
other nations were allowed to come in and then there was a system called partage which was very common so say um, and in fact a lot of um, the Mets collection now you know they would go they would um, gather funds they would say to the Egyptians right can we go and excavate this area they would agree they'd go in excavate and then they would split what was found um, and they keep all the records and that's how a lot of this stuff has um, historically got right. onto the market because and that's it like either came back to the institution but also a lot of these things were, were privately funded too and so mm. they just let mm -hmm. the people take those away right um, and and also and, and you that's know, what happens with carter and tutankhamun's tomb right exactly famously exactly um but th but another way that things got onto the market and this is sort of the way that is perhaps less less well known and less spoken about is that you know egypt had a flourishing antiquities trade until 1983 which is incredibly recently you know the the government um gave licenses to uh, you know a, a lot of vendors within sort of the um you know around cairo museum and even within cairo museum you could buy antiquities and so there's very little record of exactly what they sold from these um, and if the records exist I don't know how, you know, people don't, yeah. can't really get their right. hands on it. So how exactly this left the country, we don't know. We know how long it's, it's been around for, but, it, you know, a lot of pieces could have, up until 1983, there was, as I say, this flourishing trade. So, and, and those things aren't as well recorded because there were a lot of excavations in Egypt, something was discovered, or even there would be a sandstorm, you know, and it would blow the sand off, and you just see amulets. I mean, people, and you hear travellers talking about this during the Grand Tour, them walking through Egypt, you know, walking, you know, sort of going in one of those, sort of, you know, caravan trips, and, and they look down and they just see amulets in the sand. Wow. You know, and, and so what do you do? Well, you pick them up, yeah. don't you? Or you right. just leave them there because, you know, it, back then especially, oh, it's just an amulet. They, you know, they I were see. discovering great, huge, you right. know, um, sort of sculptures and, and temples and things that were much more exciting. Yeah. Um, but a lot of people, of course, did collect them and keep them. But it's because of this, it's all, you know, it's, it's wonderful if you know the exact fine spot of something but it's not always possible however if you know when you have an object like this that has a name sometimes it's possible to go back and you can find um, if the tomb has been discovered and there can be writings on tomb walls and so you can say okay like with Shabtis a lot of Shabtis we know exactly when the tomb was discovered and so say you've got a Shabti the recent provenance has been lost because somebody didn't keep their paperwork and they died and their ancestors inherited it and they come to you and say look we've got the shabti and you go well okay great what's the provenance and they go well we don't know but you know the shabti it's very specific and it's one of you know several like we have one at the moment um, and we know that 332 were discovered we know all about the excavation but then guess what these were dispersed all across Europe and America and it came back to us, you know, with a provenance to, I think, just the 80s. They didn't know more than that. Right. But, of course, we know when it left. We know exactly what tomb it's come from, and we know that that's when they went. Yeah. So there, there are really interesting ways, and a lot of what you have to do is try and track back and just find out where these things have come from. It's kind of like the modern way, you know, the way you're sort of in a library, you do your own version of, of archaeology yeah. because you're just trying to work out. And, and it makes these pieces more important and more interesting. And what happened in 1983? Oh, they just decided not that um, sort of their, their to stop internal laws on, on cultural heritage change. Right. And they said no more exporting um, of these goods without licenses. And they stopped granting licenses and they shut down all of the, um, the vendors. They said that's, you know, they don't want to do that anymore. Right. And, and so for almost 40 years now, uh, there's been no export trade of antiquities from, 
from Egypt? No, exactly. I mean, I... At least not legally. Um, well, yeah, I mean, no, so there's, you know, there's, I mean, that's a very contentious thing. There is no trade, you know, I mean, whether something happens or not, you know, it, who knows that site, but it, it, uh-huh. it's certainly not legal, definitely. Right, right. And there, the, there has not been, um, and I'm, I'm, when you asked me that, I was sitting there trying to think, because a lot of countries have these laws, but they still let people, they still let things out sometimes. You know, Italy will still grant export licenses, even though you're not allowed to just buy things and take them out of the country. Right. You can apply for a license. Right. And I was trying to think, but I don't know of um, Egyptian pieces that have been granted licenses since then. I've seen licenses up until that period um, and pieces that are still in the market of de- people who are still dealing, you know, and they've kept their paperwork, because um, occasionally the Egyptians will try and say that they um, deny that they granted export licenses for objects, and oh, so I, see. I know some people have gone, well, here it is. In the interest of trying to re- <laughs> repatriate, exactly, which is now a, an, uh, a, an issue that's been in the news mm. um, recent months, um, efforts to repatriate Egyptian antiquities. Yes, absolutely, and, and you know, and I, it's... Um, there's a fine line between what people believe should happen morally and what can happen legally. Mm. And, and turning around to a museum and asking for an object back because you don't really like that they own it and you say they might have taken it in a time of war or something, you know, that, that's a very Which the Egyptian government the is doing. Yes, uh, and a lot of people are doing it and it's, you know, it's very much for those, those bodies involved to decide what they want to do, really. Yeah. You know, it's sort of hard for fast to, to cast too much judgment on on these things really yeah tell me about um i, I want to turn to to you for a minute because you're um an anomaly in our field which is to say a uh young dealer who's a deep and serious specialist in an area that um it, you know the antiquities trade is not exactly friendly to um uh newcomers i mean <laughs> in other words it's a capital intensive business it's um an education intensive business how did you um uh how did you come to decide to invest your time and and your energy into these particular objects gosh it was it was it was a very very natural thing really um i think as with a lot of um children you know I was fascinated by the ancient world I mean the stories are just amazing aren't they you know whether it's Greek Roman Egyptian all of it these you know everything was very sort of um, grand armies and huge amounts of wealth and these sort of incredible gods and goddesses that did the most wild things you know and jackal and, heads and livers in <laughs> pots yeah, and exactly who isn't sort of enthralled by that yeah. as, as a youngster and and, you know, getting a formal education is becoming rarer and rarer. And although I, you know, I sort of studied Latin from a young age, you know, and you hear a lot of the stories with that, you know, when you, um, when you go to senior school, a lot of that falls, you know, by the wayside. But I decided to do ancient history and classical archaeology at university. Um, and so my love of the ancient world was, was strengthened. And I started to actually properly understand it it wasn't just mm. you know gosh aren't these buildings wonderful you know and and you know weren't these you know um, philosophers doing you know weren't they sort of pioneering and, and and being amazed at how people you know the crossover between science and religion and and power and how all the you know the ways it all intertwined and you started to understand it more and more um and and i mean after my first year at university um i met jamie Ead who um, 
who took over the company from his father, Charles Ede, who was the founder of the company, um, who previously founded um, Folio Society, became Folio Fine Arts. Oh, um, I didn't realise that. Yes, yeah, yeah. And um, uh, he, so he started... Busy guy. Yeah, very busy and, and incredibly knowledgeable. I mean, an amazing man, um, and as is Jamie. And, um, and Jamie started working for his father when he was 23, actually, and has done, you know, nothing um, yeah. since, I mean, other than, I mean, that, you know, How you just boring. fall in love with this world, and it's very, very difficult to leave. <laughs> yes. Why would you? Yeah. You, know, you have to be yeah, driven yeah. away from it. Um, even now, Jamie, you know, sort of officially retired, but um, absolutely, you know, we chat all the time, and he's still constantly looking at objects and learning and, and doing work you know you never leave you know you never leave yeah, these industries yeah, really yeah. but um anyway so I, I met Jamie and I suddenly found you know oh my goodness these things it's still a thriving market of course it is you know collections need to be added to and as soon as they stop being added to things become stagnant and people stop going to see them and people stop you know um um academic research you know it's like it sort of halts in in a lot of these fields and um and the excitement of being able to own these objects and, and hold them. And I have to say, in the time that I worked with Jamie, you know, after I, I then worked with him throughout my, my undergraduate and then my master's degree in, in specialising in ancient Rome. And, um, and within my first year of working full-time at Charles Eade, I knew so much more than I'd done, learnt mm. in, in four years of full-time education. Well, because yeah. handling these objects and spending your time day in, day out with them, it does that. And, um, and I just thought... So long as, as I'm allowed to do this, you know, that's it. I absolutely will. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful... And you're still allowed. You know, it's, it's academic and it's aesthetic, you know, and I think it's, it's still art and it's history at the same time. I mean, what I love about these things is that they can appeal to a whole raft of people for a whole load of reasons. You know, I know a lot of what we said and when we go into all the nitty-gritties of this vase and what makes it important. What's also wonderful as you look at it, it's a beautiful work of art. Yeah. You can stop yeah. there if you want to. Sure. You know, you can say, oh, it's, you know, two and a half thousand years old and I love the look of it you know you can stop there you can think oh I, I love what it represents you can love the material you can love the craftsmanship you know you think gosh what tools they use to make that you know there are so maybe many ways maybe you just need a pot in. to put your liver in <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you've got great plans for your own burial. <laughs> yeah. but, but it's wonderful. And the people you meet as well because of it are so varied. And I really enjoy that, you know, down, you know, from sort of um, teachers who collect amulets because they love inspiring their students, mm. you know, whether they're teaching eight-year-olds or 18-year-olds, you yeah. know, or, yeah. or actually, as I found it at university, my, um, my most inspiring lecturer um, was the, the man who taught me, you know, I did the origins of numismatics and he, um, collected coins and he every you know there were only four of us in the class and um, and he would bring in anywhere between five and twenty coins every single class and that's what we would be learning yeah. and it's thrilling to hold these things in your hand and to turn them about and understand them and and so knowing that you're adding to that but also being able to experience it every day I love it people coming onto the stand you know someone collects glass for example you know Venetian glass and they come and say gosh what what's this you know I kind of I feel like I recognize it but it's not quite right and you know and and suddenly they learn oh it's Roman glass and they have an understanding of it and looking at it through a set of eyes and with their own knowledge and, and expertise in a way that I've probably never looked at it. Yeah. And I love what then happens, the interaction between you and this object and, and what they're saying and they can teach you as well is, is fantastic. And yeah. 
And I like that these people um, who are coming at it from different angles as well, it shows you how broad something like antiquities can be um, in terms of who wants to collect them. You know, we do, as you know, we also do the, um, uh, the, the spring tefaf, the contemporary one out here in the armory. Um, and there as well, you know, we thought, oh gosh, I wonder how this is going to go. You know, it's, it's very for new for us. For very old things on a very contemporary show. Exactly. It's not just modern, it's contemporary, you yeah. know. Well, and people love it. It's so well received. Yeah. You know, it's almost, there's nothing more new than something that's 5,000 years old. <laughs> you know, or is it more exciting? Well, it's sort of... And if Christie's uh, can sell a Leonardo at a contemporary auction, then uh, why can't you show it? <laughs> Yeah, antiquities at a contemporary exactly. art fair. Yeah. Because there, there are things about these about you know whether it's a fragment of an inscription or, you know, um, even if it's a piece of jewellery, you know there can be something immediate about it. There can also be something deeply romantic about it, and people can see a lot of it because we deal in a lot of fragments as well. A fragment of a face, you know, that shows an eye and maybe the corner of a mouth, can be much more alluring sometimes mm. than a complete sculpture. Sure. And and that can appeal to lots of different people. As well. well, of course, that's why they always used to knock the heads off of Roman statues. Right? <laughs> well, <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, <laughs> sculpture is much more appealing than whoever the proverbial they are. You know, I think um, yeah, I hope they're rolling in their graves. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. Well, Karis, thank you so much. Um, have Have we missed anything? What What else uh, would you like our listeners to know about this canoptic vase? Um. I think we've I think we've covered about, our bases. Yeah, I think we've about oh, covered how about it. That? I think um yeah. I hope that's all that's all um, I know I probably jump back and forth quite a bit when describing well, these things, but um no, I think I think that's yeah, I think that's probably fabulous. Well thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Yeah, well it's a pleasure. Thank you. That's a wrap for today. Thanks so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. And stay tuned for next episode when Michael and I are going to take a dive into the Morgan Library and try to untangle some of the mysteries around a particular bronze bust of an infant with the help of their curator, Jennifer Tonkovich. It's going to be a pretty exciting one. Meanwhile, a huge thank you to Karis Tyndall of Charles Ede for being my guest today and to you for listening. Today's episode was edited and produced by Sammy Delotti. Our music is by Trap Rabbit. My co-host is Michael Diaz-Griffith, and I'm your host, Ben Miller. Ben Miller.